When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Dave. What's happening with yourself today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? Today is going to be a great day because we are going to hustle on over to the best disco in town. And where is the best (laughs) disco in town? The best disco in town today happens to be on the What Difference Does It Make podcast, where our guest is the author of a book called When Rock Met Disco, the story of how the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Kiss, Queen, Blondie, and more got their groove on in the me decade. <laughs> That's a mouthful. What is this about? Well, I don't know. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know <laughs> about the book, Stephen Blush, the author of it, is going to tell you more. Very good. Could you do the dance to the hustle? I could. That's probably the last dance I was actually able to. And I could do the Macarena, too. But yeah, no, the hustle, couldn't you? I never figured it out, ever. It's really easy. Next time we get together, I'm going to teach you the hustle. Okay. It's very structured. I like to freeform dance. That's just me. Oh, see, I'm better. I'm better with structure. Yeah. Yeah. I I understand. You're the grammar police. You need, things need to be (laughs) away. I throw things your way and then you're like, no, no, no. It needs to be structured. So yeah, I get it. This makes perfect sense. So you can teach me how to freeform it and I'll teach you how to do the hustle. Nice. Okay. And the Macarena, if you're lucky. Oh, well, we'll see about that. All right. Well, yeah. So we're talking to Stephen Blush. We're going to talk disco music and we're going to talk uh, when these rock artists started to do some dance on their stage. I know our audience remembers when Rod Stewart did Do You Think I'm Sexy and the, the Stones came out with Miss You. But Stephen Blush is going to tell us a lot more of the intricacies, what was going on at the time. I like to hear that. Yeah, it's a great read. And we're going to talk all about it. But first, we're also talk about social media. Where do they find things going on with what difference does it make? We love to talk about social media. And you can find us on all social media at WDDIM podcast and on YouTube where you'll see outtakes from our talk with Stephen Blush at what difference does it make podcast? Very good. All right. Well, then let's get into our virtual studio. We are talking with Stephen Blush. The book is called When Rock Met Disco. How do I finish that up? Because I don't know the rest of it. When Rock Met Disco. The story of how the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Kiss, Queen, Blondie, and more got their groove on in the me decade. Okay. Hopefully we'll talk about all those artists and more. But let's get right into it. This is Stephen Blush on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Yay. Welcome and thank you. Yeah, of course. And we've got you in here because you've got this book out. It's called When Rock Met Disco. 
Well, let's start with your personal story. You started. You said your your dad worked in the the Lower East Side, and you got and you did with with music at all times. What was that like? How old were you at the time? You lived in the Lower East, East Side. No, I, I, I kind of had a double life of uh, being in the Lower East Side and uh, commuting from the Jersey suburbs. <laughs> so um, I had this kind of uh, rock bet disco life. When rock bet disco really is the story of my life. Should I take it back a little bit? When I'm a uh, we team, uh, there was American Top 40 with Casey Kasem, and I would memorize that show. I would know all 40 songs. So I was really kind of made for radio. And New York um, is early on a lot of musical tastes, and I was hearing all these sounds everywhere. I was hearing this kind of orchestral music that was very um, Black and Puerto Rican. That was uh, pretty much the community there. Just paying close attention because it was very different than everything I was hearing. There was a radio station that started in New York. Well, this is WKTU in New York. How you doing? Disco 92 with Paco. That's my name and disco is my game. We have a hot one now. Woof. Yeah. Foxy. They were playing the early disco. It's a few years before the Bee Gees. I would call it like do the hustle kind of era. I don't know how many of the artists you would know, but it was a sound that was very orchestral. Maybe Barry White would have like a 30-piece orchestra and it would be this romantic but danceable music. And there were all these groups like the Sal Soul Orchestra and Crown Heights Affair and Soul Makosa was a song. And there's a sound that's coming out of New York, which is... I didn't, I don't even think I knew what gay was, but I could tell there was something different going on. And I was immediately hooked. It was a very foreign sound in that it was not the kind of stuff I was hearing in the suburbs. In the meantime, I'm uh, growing up with rock and roll. Just to name drop, a a friend of mine from high school is a kind of a well-known DJ in Los Angeles named Matt Pinfield. You know, he would school be on Aerosmith, you know, all the kind of music that was happening at the time. And that's kind of how I learned all of those sounds. So I kind of had this dual thing going on. And that is, you know, I think a lot of why I wrote When Rock Met Disco, because again, this was my life. And now Matt and all those guys hated disco. They hated the hustle. And I didn't really get it. I just thought music was music, right? Mm-hmm. So I was just learning. And, um, you know, my first concert was Led Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden. And I'm like maybe 12, 13 years old at the time. So it's just this kind of conglomeration of music that really made sense to me. And that was how I grew up. I knew there was something forbidden about it, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And it really was that it was you know, gay and black and Puerto Rican and, and all that, you know, there's this idea of the seventies as being this time of feminism and the rise of gay rights and, and all that stuff. But it was a very conservative time, especially hip people were very conservative college people, radio people, you know, they were not hip, you know, they really didn't like much that everybody was in their pocket. I mean, I guess that's, that's kind of <laughs> universal. Sure. What you went to school with Matt Pinfield? Yeah. I'm sure he had a Disco Sucks t-shirt 
Oh, yeah. Know. Well, he was a disco sucks person for sure. Yeah. 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 But uh, then, in fact, I interviewed him for this book and he still says disco sucks. Oh yeah. No, I love the the quotes in the book were, <laughs> were phenomenal. Did your dad take you to work on the weekends or when were you, yeah. when did you find Right, right. So I would come in on the weekends that I would just, you know, I'd, I'd work in, my dad ran a printing shop, which was a very old school kind of thing. It wasn't like a, a new hip printing, like we know it today. It was like old printing presses and all that. And I learned how to operate those presses. And that's very much why I think I got into um, publishing. I knew how to run a printing press. There were two guys who worked for my dad and they would turn on the radio and like this music was just so interesting to me. They listened to a lot of um, salsa was really the sound of New York of, of that area. Disco kind of connected to that, you know, it was kind of like a less Latin version of it. I was paying attention to Tito Puente and, and a lot of these kind of guys, but didn't really resonate with me like disco did. Just the idea that music was there to dance and to look good, right? And to be stylish. What I learned in a lot of this uh, research on the book is obviously common knowledge, but since I'm not really from the 60s, I don't really come from that. So in the 60s, it was very much... Music had gotten very ugly. It was uh, druggy and people wearing buckskin jackets and, and blue jeans. And, you know, that was rock and roll. And that was kind of like what that scene was. And I always talk about music being from the head, the heart, right? So that was music very much from the head. You know, everyone was kind of feeding their head, if you want to use the Jefferson Airplane line. And uh, suddenly there's this sound where... It's tied into a fashion, really bad fashion, like nothing I would really wear. You know, the polyester suits and, and, and that kind of stuff. Would you say disco was below the belt, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. So it's the head, the heart, and the groin, right? Yeah. Those, that's, that's where your music comes from. So this was more heart and groin. That's what was kind of fascinating to me about it, was that it was a music about just having fun. I never really considered that. I always thought music was something like you analyzed or understood. Like there was no real understanding to rock the boat. It's just rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. <laughs> so I'd like to know where you got the notion. Said I'd like to know where you got the notion. Rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat. I don't tip the boat over. Rock the boat. I don't rock the boat, baby. You know, and then, as I said, there's all these African sounds coming in with Solmacosa. Like, I had never heard those sounds. So, Freddie Crocker became your Casey Kasem? Is that what happened? Right, exactly, yeah. Frankie Crocker was huge. You know, they call me wax paper because I'll rap on anything. They call me aluminum foil when the rap gets so strong. When it gets good to them, they call me candy paper because the rap is definitely sweet. But be cool, young girl. Don't let your eyes and your ears get your mind so messed up. You desire something. You're hard. And your young body just can't stand. This is Frankie Crocker. And when Frankie Crocker isn't on your radio, your radio isn't really on. But like they say, often imitated, but never quite duplicated. This is satin in stereo. Life is what you make it. And um, he wasn't giving you facts about the music. He was just going like, let it flow. And that was what was so beautiful about him. 
Frankie Crocker was, it's so cool you brought him up. He was the disco DJ. He brought the sound. I mean, he brought Sol Makosa to New York. He really understood it. And I understood those DJs. And maybe because I was so young, it made sense. So you discovered disco on the right. radio, but you were, you were too young to be going to these clubs that are too young, but I would yeah. like, like the guys who would work with my dad, like went to the clubs and this is like way before studio 54. These are small, very small venues and God knows what they were doing, you know, because they weren't telling me exactly what they were doing. <laughs> it was just the idea that there was this, you went to New York and there was this different kind of lifestyle. And that's what always kind of got me. And even as I followed further undergrounds, like it wasn't like I didn't like the Bee Gees because I understood that they had this whole history as kind of like the Australian Beatles and I kind of, and the music was really tight, but I was already found this new underground, which was kind of punk rock because around the corner from my dad's place in the Lower East Side was CBGB's which of course fits into Blondie and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's a little complicated, but I inherently understood rock and disco. And when did you manage to get into CBGBs? I would go to CBGBs because, and a a lot of places, just because nobody upheld the drinking law. So, you know, I'd be 13, 14 years old in a bar. There were a lot of times I'd go to CBGBs and not actually see the show because I had to go home. (laughs) <laughs> but I was, uh, but I was there during the sound check. Like I, I know, like as I got older, like people in Blondie and, and Talking Heads would be like, they'd like point at me. They'd be like, I know you. And and also, here's a crazy one: was that in that building on the floor above us is a very industrial building. There was a band that used to practice that I was terrified of, and they just made this sound that I didn't know who they were. But I used to always see them outside. And many years later, I realized that was Talking Heads. <laughs> and they had this guy who would stare at me, and that was David Byrne. Right? <laughs> you know, so, so I was very close to it all, but I was too young. They'd almost laugh at me. But I would drink at these places. I would go where I, where I could get served, which was pretty much anywhere. My dad would work the extra three hours, and I'd be getting plastered at 13. So um, <laughs> that would be... <laughs> that was, and your dad would drive you home afterwards, huh? Sometimes I'd throw up out the window. Oh, he knew. He knew exactly what was going on. What a, <laughs> yeah, what a yeah. good dad. That's, a, that's, uh, that's good parenting right there. I approve. <laughs> I think all of our parents ignored it at the time they knew what we were doing, and it seemed so innocent back then. Yeah, yeah, it was a totally, it was a, a different view. I was talking to somebody who I kind of grew up around. His father and my father were friendly. And he was always the one pouring the drinks for everybody. Like, you'd go to their house and he'd hand you a drink. He's like my age. I knew how to pour a cocktail. Oh, the (laughs) 70s. All right. We are talking with Stephen Blush, but the time has come. We're going to park it on the dance floor. It's time to take a break and then we'll get back on it right after this. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hustling back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Stephen Blush. All right. So you put the disco years as 74 to 1980. It just starts with Saturday Night Fever, which just becomes the biggest movie in the world. The amazing thing about that movie is that it's a completely made up story. The guy who wrote the story for New York Magazine had never stepped foot in in a discotheque. He just made up the whole thing. That's what they based the uh, screenplay on. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty amazing. And I had a lot of like friends, uh, like cousins and stuff who, who lived in that kind of Bay Ridge Canarsie area, which was where discotheque and Saturday Night Fever yeah. was. It was not like unfamiliar territory. And that's where like you would get the guys with the disco hair who'd be fighting all the time and, and fighting for the girl's honor. <laughs> so it was not really the kind of person I was in New Jersey. I always felt like I was floating between all these different worlds. So there's this, the explosion of disco in 77, which is really 78 because that movie is like December 77 and disco becomes the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. 1979 is a crazy year because it's like disco is, it's alive, but yet everyone's trying to kill it and say it's dead. Actually what happens in 1979 is by the, at the beginning of the year, something like 14 of the top 20 records are disco. And by the end of the year, like three of them are. At the end, it's the disco sucks thing. The, the record burning at Comiskey Park. It's basically like book burning. That's your 1980. And 1980 also is where you get into punk and new wave. So, so those are the things that kind of take over at that point. And country. So, <laughs> so it's, it's just a constant search. But I think that's a pretty good answer for your seven-year period. As, as much as I was, I'd gotten into that whole underground and very heavily of this punk new wave thing, I hated the disco sucks part of it because it was disco. It was disco. It just, I, I didn't really get it. It was like, you're just, you're dancing to music and you're just wearing different clothes. Like you said, music is music. Right. And racially motivated, don't you think? Yes. There's a few people who make this point in the book that, you know, there's parts of it that are racially motivated, but there's also parts of it that are like against this kind of like Saturday Night Fever kind of people, which is not racial. So it's a little bit of both. But was it racial? Yes. Yes, there was. Uh, was it 
uh, homophobic. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, I just come from a tolerant point of view in New York. It was never, we never even discussed like what race you were. Everybody just kind of got, kind of got on the idea that like a music would separate people was, was kind of foreign and not cool. It wasn't cool. I mean, it just, the idea that like you were separating music because of race, I, I just didn't really get it. A lot of these disco groups, you would watch them, you know, Daz Band, Daz Disco Jazz, you know, that kind of stuff. You watch their performances, they're incredible. Yeah. You know, they're incredible groups. And then there's the the thing, which is really the whole basis of this book. You know, musicians are musicians, right? You you just hear a note and you you play your version, you hear something and you play your version of it. And that's what happened with Rolling Stones Miss You and, and Do You Think I'm Sexy and I Was Made for Loving You by Kiss. And, and of course, Blondie, which is, you know, working with Giorgio Moroder, who produced Donna Summer. But the difference was disco was often weakest musically in that it was either session musicians or uh, these light jazz groups who were told like, well, if you want a record contract, you'll, you'll play disco. So there was that. But then then you had the rock bands. You think about your iconic Mick Jagger and Bianca and Eddie Warhol at Studio 54, or you think of Gene Simmons and D Diana Ross at Studio 54. They were digging the sounds. Right. Finally, you had real musicians playing disco. And it's not like these became disco acts, not like the Rolling Stones became a disco group or it's not like, you know, Kiss is about to break up. So they're doing a lot of interviews. It's not like they're still paying for I was made for loving you. They still have to explain that away. It's still in their shows. And yeah. You know what? It's a great Huge song. Hit. So I spoke to a lot of the guys who worked on that. So all these guys are like really good musicians. I mean, Carmine Apache the drummer on, on Do You Think I'm Sexy? I mean, he, he played with Ozzy Osbourne. He played with yeah. Vanilla Fudge before that. Anton Fig is the drummer on I Was Made for Loving You. And all the engineers and producers, you know, they worked on everything. A couple of the producers talked with the Kiss guys talked about how they would go to Studio 54 and then go back and mix, you know, some hard rock song. So what a musician does, hears an idea and puts their own flip on it. And that's what these bands were doing. It's really kind of fascinating. So what you got was rock tones in dance music. And that's something that still exists to this day. Like if you're going to talk about what's the legacy of this music, that's what it is. I mean, the bands that came from Manchester, England, EMD today, they have rock tones. They're mixing the two. And that's beautiful. That's the blend. Yeah. Just go to Coachella. That's the natural progression. That's what should happen. You differentiated though, you these the bands that you mentioned, so the Stones and Kiss and Rod Stewart, you differentiated rock disco and disco rock. So rock disco like those bands is, is, is a natural phenomenon, as I described. Disco rock is a little more of a novelty where you're trying to turn Stairway to Heaven into a disco song. Thank you. 
it would have more energy than your typical disco song, but it, it it's it's still disco. Yeah. Right. Because it's still coming from producers. It's not yeah. coming from artists. Yeah. I think that's the key part. Yeah. You know, Kiss were not paying attention to black music per se, but they were into what was hip, right? So yeah. there's that element to it too. It's just like you just think it's cool. I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with like hearing a song, thinking it's cool, and wanted to write a song like that. And that's what happened. That's what when rock met disco is. Blanca Records was there. Did you do research on Neil Bogart and how insane he is? Neil Bogart, you know, of course, he started Casablanca in New York before moving it out there. Every story you read about him is true. You know, he was <laughs> just pretty much your de- definitive 70s character. So whatever excess that there that you know about, he he embodied it. Was he the one who encouraged Kiss or was it just Kiss could do whatever they wanted to? This was... No, I think he was he was pretty hands off on everything. I mean, Kiss didn't even make it till about their fourth or fifth album, which is almost unheard of these days. Yeah. But what's really amazing was that Casablanca Records had both Kiss and Parliament Funkadelic, and they used to share a airport hangar where they would both rehearse in the New York area. So they both were getting ideas, stage sure. ideas from each other and production ideas from each other. And that makes so sense. that's a pretty fascinating chapter too. I, I didn't get too much into that. That's a really incredible story. Like the idea of like these Broadway designers would work with both groups. Yeah. yeah. On their costumes because they were all tied into Neil Bogart. I, I was actually surprised. You had a quote from George Clinton who said he did not like disco. He wasn't a, a fan of it. Right. So there's, and you see almost all the black artists say they don't like disco. And what they're, what they're really saying is that they don't like being pigeonholed as disco. It's not like they didn't like to dance. I mean, their whole, that was their whole groove. As black people, they were kind of pigeonholed with this disco thing, which is, you know, kind of awful if you think about it. You know, I think that was a troubling cultural issue at the time. It was categorized differently. And, you know, in hindsight, we can see why it was categorized differently. But at the time, it was all just music to us. Right. And- right. And, and also for them, the, um, it was kind of like I had said before, it's that, well, if you, if you want to sign a deal, you're going to make disco records. It's really just an awful thing. I don't think labels even do that today. I think, I think they want, they expect a sound, but they're not like saying change your sound if you want to record for us, which is very different. They did do it with rock artists though back in the the late seventies. Also, rock artists. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do a power ballad, that yeah. kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Conversely, you had another quote from Donna Summer, who considers herself a, a rock artist. I mean, she had a great <laughs> quote that legitimizes her induction into the Rock Hall. 
Yeah, well, she was a, I think she was a rocker. We talk a little about her story in there. She comes from like the Boston rock scene, but most importantly, she had this incredible rock sound, kind of like the precursor to maybe Beat It and Thriller and those kind of songs. great thing from uh, Dave Herman at NEW who tried to play it and it did not work. Right. And he was getting hate mail basically. Yeah. That's insane. And I do remember, I do remember that era because that was the, that was the rock station in in New York at the time. You know, like that was the station where John and Yoko would come on the air, like kind of stuff, you know? So it was kind of like a, kind of a hip station and this, and here's one of their main DJs, hearing bad girls and say, I want to play this and like literally told he can't do it, which is really kind of, it kind of, it, well, it's sad. It's, and it also speaks to the era too, right? Yeah. It also speaks to like the world hadn't really crossed over for all the yeah. talk of the crossover. It hadn't happened yet. You know, it, it still took until what, till today <laughs> for yeah. it to happen. It was a difficult time and place. If we're going to talk about Donna Summer, who also worked with Donna Summer, uh, of course, Giorgio Moroder was her producer. And Giorgio Moroder then worked with Blondie. And he did Call Me, which was on American Gigolo, I believe, which is a really dirty song, like a really, just a really dirty lyrics by Debbie Harry. hip-hop and that's your 1980 as well blondie i think define what i was kind of i mean i don't mean to internalize it but that thing that i i was kind of describing in myself about how as a new yorker you're open to all these different music forms because you hear them all the time that's what was going on with blondie you know because don't forget blondie starts at cbgb's their first two records are on a label called private stock which is uh richard goddard from sire records who was a rock producer. I mean, he wrote the song, I Want Candy in the 60s. And and, uh, when they left him, they went to Chrysalis, which was a major label at the time. They were suddenly allowed to do more. And those were the songs that they're kind of known for. So that's like a very interesting 
part of this story too. It's like who opened themselves up to do disco, right? Disco is something you have to kind of embrace because if you think it, it doesn't really work. You know, you have to really like want it. You have to like really feel it. And we were, you know, kind of talking about Kiss and stuff, but that song, I mean, that is totally what they wanted to do. And then there's like stuff like, I didn't get too much into the book, but like, like if you're a Grateful Dead fan, there's this like hatred, like this kind of rewriting of history as if they weren't into disco. They made an album called Shakedown Street. That's a complete disco record. Before that, they did a record called Terrapin Station, which had a couple songs like that. And, it, and if you read it, what I did my research, it's just Mickey Hart Love Disco. Nobody wants to hear that if you're if you're a Grateful Dead fan. <laughs> it just goes back. But, to, I mean, it's always the just love, they, they love disco. The drummer. So, yeah. I feel like for the sake of the podcast, we should talk about briefly. You mentioned the Comiskey Park incident. That was pretty major. So Steve Dahl was a, like an FM rock DJ. He originally comes from the West Coast. Gets this job in Chicago. The station he works for goes disco. And that's the bait of his, his existence. He starts this army, <laughs> this anti-disco army that he promotes on the air. And his soldiers are like 15-year-old boys from Illinois. Before the big incident at Comiskey Park, he would do these shows at clubs in the suburbs of Chicago where they're destroying disco records and even more so going to the disco down the street and like graffitiing it and, you know, things like that. <laughs> So he really became like a hero to like these kids who had felt like they were sold out by disco. There was this idea that like disco had sold out rock and roll, which was just not true. Disco was a sensation unto itself. So the Chicago White Sox were a particularly bad team at the time. Uh, there was a guy named Bill Veck who used to own the team. He was famous in baseball history for every stunt. He pulled stunts all the time. He's known for putting a four foot seven player out there one day just so he would walk because they couldn't pitch to him because he was too short. This is the kind of milieu we're talking about. So Bill Veck's son is running the team and he listens to Steve Dahl on the radio. And there's this meeting where Steve Dahl's station and the White Sox have this really great idea that they're going to do a disco record verdict in between a doubleheader. They did it. Basically, the, a team that was drawing about 20,000 a game in a 60,000 seat stadium suddenly draws like 60,000 people. How about the Bee Gees? Oh, I see. Okay. Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box. 
and we're going to blow them up real good. Disco sucks. Disco sucks. And we're never going to let them forget it. They're not going to shove it down our throats. We rock and rollers will resist, and we will triumph. All right, you ready? We're going to count to three, and they go boom. And they're going to pull up Brooklyn, I'm telling you, it's going to be hot. One, two, three, boom! Here they go! Yeah. Yeah. There's people like on the streets, there's like, the streets are blocked off by the cops. There's stories of like, in game one of the doubleheader where people are just flinging 12 inches down into the crowd. I mean, incredibly dangerous, like just firing records, <laughs> like, like everywhere. Steve Dahl sees what bedlam it causes and runs away. So this great hero to, to all these people was like a sellout. The crowd was so riled up by that point that um, the damage, the stadium was palpable. I mean, there, there was holes in center field. There was, it was a dangerous situation. There was like, like there were riot police. I mean, they're destroying Kabiski Park. It was so out of hand. Well, I will say for the first two, three months after that, Steve Dahl Station was the number one station in Chicago. And he was the star of Chicago, even though I told you that he ran away and all that kind of stuff. He, he was going to get a national TV show and... Within a month, everyone was sick of it because everyone realized like how awful this really was. And that's the end of the Disco Sucks revolution. Well, his efforts failed because this music still lives on. So that's the what rock met disco paradigm is that rock and disco both live. And they still to this day and they interact to this day. I think what rock met disco was a positive experience because it changed music for the better. Because it couldn't have gotten much worse at the time, too. If you remember FM Rock at that time, it was pretty pretty dire. And so the idea of bringing some funkiness to it all really helped it. I just think that, like, if you look at music today, you know, you look at what happened in Manchester, England, New Order, EDM today. Those are all positive developments. Music was changed for the better because of I Was Made for Loving You and Miss You <laughs> and all those songs. I well, okay. So, the, and is the next book uh, is going to be 1980? You're going to do the Urban Cowboy rock, when rock met, met country? Actually, very. It's kind of interesting you said that. I uh, actually signed up for a series. My next one comes out about this time next year. It's going to be called When Rock Met Reggae, and that's kind <laughs> of the story of like you know Bob Marley crossover into punk into rock. You know, so that's a much meatier story, actually. Yeah. That's, that's actually like history. The assassination attempt on Bob Marley, you know, pretty heavy stuff is in there. And then uh, when Rock met hip hop. So those are the next three books, all, all with backbeat. Congratulations, Steve. You found your niche. Way to go. Yeah. Now I finally have my own section. There you go. Yeah, right there. You got your, got your lane. I'm glad this book now exists. It was a crazy time. So thanks so much for, for this book and for sharing your, your stories. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for having me on. It was you guys asked really good questions and, and all that. So yes, really, good. really enjoyed the book. It was educational for me, and it was good to have the blanks filled in because we experienced it in our way in Los Angeles, and it was interesting just to have it colored in for us. So thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. All right, Holly, do you know all you need to know about disco and uh, when rock met disco? I think I do. I like that era. Oh, I, I love that era. It was actually my injury point at, in 78. That's when I started buying records. And so it wasn't weird for me. And I, I feel like Steven was the same way. Good music is good music, right? That is our motto. Well, that is one of our mottos. But yes, music is music. It's got a good beat and you can dance to it. And love is love is love is love is love. That's what we've learned here at uh, at the What Difference Does Make podcast. Among other things, but yeah, it's oh, been okay. four years, so. We're constantly learning here. So thank you to Stephen Blush for coming into our virtual studios. Thank you to Pantheon Podcasts. Thank you to Shauna at Roman Publishing. Please subscribe to our podcast. We have new episodes every Friday. You can also find our monthly newsletter. Sign up for it at WDDIMpodcast.com. That's where you'll find all our podcast episodes and anything you need to know. Where else can they find information on us, Holly? Social media at WDDIM Podcast and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.